Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today, I'm very lucky to have Dr. Mark Leanderis on the show, who is my co-author of this book that we will tell you a lot more about as we move into the fall and it comes out, and also who I worked with for almost a decade at Gay Parents-to-Be and Alum Fertility. So... Dr. Leanderis is the founder, medical director, and partner of reproductive endocrinology at Alum Fertility and Gay Parents-to-Be. He's a board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. He currently serves as a member of the Resolves Physician Council and member of ASRM's Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Task Force. He also is a past president of ASRM's LGBTQ Special Interest Group. He's been selected by Castle Connolly's top doctor in Connecticut and New York for many consecutive years. For Dr. Leanderis, medicine offers an opportunity to solve problems such as fertility patient issues and puzzles like that. This combined with a wide range of interests and life events is how Dr. Leanderis came into reproductive endocrinology and infertility and started his own fertility practice and also built his family. So welcome, Dr. Leanderis. It's good to see you as always. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's really an honor or a privilege to be here. I'm very excited to be here today and uh, excited to have this conversation about uh, many things that go into becoming a father. Well, I'm really excited to see you as always, but also today because today is Father's Day and Father's Day during Pride. So this is a bonus episode and I'm thrilled to have you as our expert talk about all the things that people need to know for gay family building, but also for straight family building. Since we're at it, we may as well discuss the whole gamut of how that works. And I think the audience would really be interested in us understanding what happens when people come to your office? Why don't we just start with the straight couples? Somebody comes into your office and they say, we have infertility problems. What are the first steps? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, for over 25 years, I've been seeing infertile couples. And I think it's important just to process that nobody really ever wants to come to the fertility doctor. But we are here to help you. And we actually have a lot of tools in our toolbox to help you. So when someone comes to our office and they have, they're in an opposite sex relationship, we have to kind of define the reason. And it's uh, really quite surprising to recognize that 30 to 40% of subfertility or difficulty getting pregnant are actually male factor problems. And within that, there's actually a very small fraction of dads-to-be who actually just don't have any sperm, or maybe there's medical issues in their background that might lead them to want to use donated gametes, specifically donated sperm, 
or perhaps they're in an age group that we're aware in, in medicine that there might be more negative risks potentially passed on to their child to be, and they're going to choose to use donated gametes. So when, when somebody first comes to our office, it's like, well, let's examine the female component and let's examine the male component. And the male component examination is pretty straightforward, meaning it's going to require a semen analysis, or maybe you come to the table knowing that you're going to want to use a alternative sperm source because of your family history. And that might be something like mental illness, schizophrenia, and things like that, or it might be something that's a genetic condition that you know could be passed on to your child that you just want to, want to avoid. So working out those details within the couple are something that we're trained to do as reproductive endocrinologists. And what we also have to talk about is everybody comes to our office with a little bit of maybe grief or heavy heart that they need the help. And that's where, let's say, folks like you come in to try to um, support people through that, that relationship. And that can be so heartbreaking because when you're in a situation where you can't use your gametes, people probably come to see you and say, you know, this is really hard, but we're ready to move forward in spite of that. And we're ready to use donor sperm and donor eggs. And so once they get to that place, how, why don't we start with the donor sperm? What do patients usually go through? For people who need to use donor sperm, dads to be that need to use donor sperm, they are often looking for somebody that might be of the same ethnic group as they are, perhaps certain what we call in medicine phenotypic features, how they look. But then, you know, from my seat, I'm always trying to stress that uh, somebody's family history, their family genetics are actually much more important than, than what they look like right? We're all a representation of the past five or six generations of our maternal side and paternal side. And processing the fact that um, looking for a somebody who's going to be the genetic component for your child to be is something that, that really, you know, um, opens up somebody's perspective of maybe on who they are. I sometimes will ask somebody who's working hard to find uh, a donor, and this goes across whether you're looking for a sperm donor, an egg donor, if you look at your own family tree, you know, there's going to be things within it that, that you might not have even chosen for your for yourself. Right. And uh, and then if you look even amongst your sibling groups, sometimes you'll notice that 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 siblings can be very different, even though they, they have the same genetic parents. So it's really fascinating to think of in, in reproductive medicine. You know, we understand that there's 46 chromosomes. But those carry 52,000 genes. And there's a lot of genes that kind of interact that go into who we are. And on a very basic level, what we want for our children first is health, right? And that yes, health absolutely. has a lot to do with their family tree. And it has a lot to do with the, the mental health of the, the donor that you choose as well, because there's a lot of information on that. And those are things that we can't really always define as a, as a single genetic issue. It's, it's really a combination of environment and genetics. So so when somebody comes in um, looking for a sperm donor, I think we have to kind of be practical and leapfrog over that grief and then think about what's important to them and sometimes refocus on what they should be looking at. And uh, it's incredibly hard. And uh, it's always been really frustrating to me when somebody comes in, whether they need a sperm donor or an egg donor, that some folks really are like, oh, well, you just need to find a donor, right? 
But that perspective is really not helpful. I mean, as a as a dad through egg donation myself, you know, it's a it's a lot of stress and work to um, look for a donor. As a father to be, who let's say needs to find a sperm source because of their own medical considerations or perhaps their medical issues, that's got to be very very hard. And acknowledging that, I think, is important. If I could just flip the conversation a little bit. If it's your partner, your female partner that needs an egg donor, one of the things that I've seen that the that the, the male partners often do is they leave it up to them. And what I know from years of doing this as well is, is that, that your partner really wants your opinion and they don't want to bear the whole responsibility of, of finding the egg donor, right? So whether you're looking for a sperm donor because of your own issue or your partner's looking for an egg donor because of their issue, this is something you're going to do together. And I also have seen over the years, there's sometimes a situation where some person's the seeker and some person's the approver. And that always creates extra tension because you can always find something wrong. So Mm -hmm. my thought process when you go through this is spend time with your mental health professional, spend time understanding what medical issues come into play. And then sit down and it might be three or four weekends in a row, but come to some consensus together. That's great advice. That's wonderful. And then what about the medical side of it? How do we know if we're getting healthy eggs or sperm? That's a multi-layered question that's not not easy to answer. But um, how do we know we're getting healthy eggs is probably a little bit easier than how we know we're getting healthy sperm. But since eggs are probably 80 to 90% responsible for a healthy pregnancy and child-to-be, it's really quite complex. So on the, on the male side, when we look at, at healthy sperm, we're really looking at a single cell organism that has compacted DNA, uh, and we're looking at the shape of the sperm, the motility of the sperm, and then we look at the health of the sperm source as a representative of those, that little packet of DNA. So I think of a sperm as almost like the flash drive to the supercomputer. In fact, sometimes I tell my patients, you know, think about that's the car key to the Maserati, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can't go anywhere without the car key, but it's necessary material. While we'd like to be able to pick the healthiest sperm, we can't. We actually take the semen analysis, we We'll find the moving, normally shaped sperm if we're in the IVF laboratory and we're going to do, you know, inject one sperm into one egg. And we're just picking the the best morphologically or shaped or looking sperm that's moving to inject into the egg. Now, if somebody's doing, you know, insemination, right? So you've got a healthy sperm source that's checked all the boxes, mental health, genetics, their own family tree and so on. And then you've got, you know, 5 million sperm that you're putting into the female reproductive tract. And, you know, there's this kind of, excuse the show and tell, but this concept of you got to go through the cervix, through the uterus, and half the sperm go the wrong way because they don't ask directions, right? That's a bad male factor infertility joke, <laughs> yeah, that's right? That's great. And, uh, and then it takes about fifty to 100,000 sperm to fertilize an egg because they have to make it through the defenses of the egg. And then one sperm that we didn't pick, you didn't pick, nobody picked, just randomly got to the right place at the right time. And then that egg, once the sperm membrane hits, 
actually activates a little bit of, of a force field or, or a calcium channel blockade that blocks every other sperm from getting in. But that sperm that got in is random, right? And that's part of the diversity in our, in our, in our human family, right? All across the globe, there's, you know, eight billion of us, I think, now, and, and none of us are the same. You know, so assessing sperm quality and function um, is, is very difficult, even though it's only a single cell. Now, we can certainly, you know, say what sperm don't do well, right? We have emotile sperm that don't do well. We have immature sperm that don't do well. But if you're using um, a sperm from uh, a donor, you're not going to have those situations. There's going to be, you know, healthy sperm and healthy background to look at. The sperm is already screened at the, at the sperm bank. Yeah, correct, because the sperm is already screened for the sperm. As far as healthy eggs, that's also a fascinating issue. So, you know, the male reproductive system is always making new sperm, minute by minute, minute by minute, month by minute. And for women, they've made all their eggs, actually, by the time they're only five months in utero, so in the uterus of their mother, right? Um, and then it's a decline, and it's an inexorable decline as you move towards menopause. And, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about reproductive endocrinology, so um, that women have really five distinct hormonal parts to their life, right? And only part of it is reproduction. So after you get done with puberty, you know, women are, are fertile. And then they transition sometime between, you know, 42 to 45 to being, you know, not infertile in that kind of what we call perimenopausal period. But we also know that, that the quality of the eggs that have been in storage or hibernation since, let's say, the age of 12 or 13 starts to really decline significantly at 35 and more significantly over 40. So egg quality is a representation probably of, of oh, a, a woman's ability or a person's ability to keep those eggs basically appropriately stored and not harmed by the environment at all, at all and without breaking down. And I think that, um, you know, I'm still fascinated by the fact, by what an egg does through the process of fertilization and making an embryo. And, and perhaps we, we should talk about that more now or switch to another topic. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's great. That's a great segue. So how does the embryo develop and once, you, once you've done that, you've put the sperm and the egg together, it's going to be, if in IVF anyway, you're going to have it in the lab, right? And so how does that develop and how do you choose the right embryo for the family? I have 46 chromosomes. You have 46 chromosomes. Pretty much everybody on, on this Zoom has 46 chromosomes, but a sperm has 23 chromosomes. And that's the male development process. But a human egg in storage in the ovary still has 46 chromosomes. It's actually frozen in the middle of something called meiosis one. And with ovulation, it wakes up, pulls apart chromosomes, duplicates chromosomes, and waits for the sperm to hit. And at that point in time, it's called a meiosis two egg. And then that egg that's been in storage maybe for 30 years has to unpack the male chromosomes, complete another division, so it goes down to 23. So now the 23 chromosome egg and the 23 chromosome sperm, the egg matches up all 23 chromosomes, one to one, two to two, three to three, all along this kind of like plate within the egg itself 
And then the next day, fascinatingly enough, we can see a single cell embryo that has two pronuclei. It's called a two pronuclei embryo, and that's the sperm nucleus and the egg nucleus. And that's the only time in your life you'll have a two nuclei cell that's healthy. And by within a matter of 24 hours, that one cell zygote becomes a two cell, four cell, eight cell, 16, 32, 64, 128 embryo. Um, and that's what we watch in the laboratory. So how we evaluate embryo quality is completing fertilization, staying on a pretty strict division curve, and eventually making an embryo that's called the blastocyst, which is an embryo that is no longer just eight to 12 cells, but it actually has gone through a process where the cells that are going to become the, the baby or the fetus have been defined by a process we don't understand. And the cells that are going to become the placenta are also defined. And those placenta cells start pulling in fluid from the outside and they puff out this embryo and it becomes what's called a blastocyst and eventually it breaks out of its shell. So all of us on this podcast, you know, broke out of a shell and we have the ability to just look at that embryo to see it went through all those processes. And we do have the ability now to biopsy an embryo to see if it has the right amount of chromosomes. We even have the ability to biopsy embryos if you're a carrier of a certain genetic disease to, to make sure we're transferring an embryo that maybe doesn't carry, let's say, a, a disease-causing mutation or a cancer-related risk gene. As you can see, I'm really passionate to talk about this. It's like an amazing process that uh, we go through every day. And, uh, you know, and for a lot of people who are choosing to use um, uh, donated eggs, they're coming to this table because their eggs aren't working well anymore. Right. And, and that might be something that, that, that they were kind of born with or that may be secondary to what we call reproductive aging. So they might be in that, you know, age group where they no longer have a healthy egg pool. But what's you know remarkable is that, you know, once you find the right donor for you and your partner, you know, you can still become a parent through egg donation. And if you need a sperm source, you can become a parent through sperm donation. So. For opposite sex couples, you know, typically you're using the, the biology of one of the intended parents and you're using donated gametes from the other intended parents. And when you're in that process of making that decision, it seems otherworldly. And I do think it's, you know, really, really difficult. But there's going to be a point in time that, you know, you're going to be holding your child in your arms. And that's all going to go away. It's really quite amazing as humans how we have the ability to move beyond grief and move forward, hopefully, together and, and move forward with hope uh, as we raise our family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as usual, that was so beautifully said and um, incredible. I think our, you know, our guests are so lucky to hear this beautiful description. It's wonderful. What about, since we're also talking about pride, what is different for a gay couple um, if you have, you know, lesbian partners or two male partners who are going through the same thing. They still have to pick the sperm and the egg, and they're watching this process of the embryo develop in the lab in the same way. But there are differences, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, um, that you know every couple has their own unique pathway. But uh, um, I think if you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community and you need donor gametes. 
maybe you don't come to it from the same spot of grief. You come to it like, oh, heck, there's people out there that can help us have a baby, right? And maybe more excited to find who this donor is going to be. And, and, you know, also anxious to know who this donor is. Um, because if you're, as I am a member of a two-dad family, or if you're going to be a two-mom family, or if you're a single parent-to-be, you know, you're going to share with your child information about that donor. And in fact, you know, you and I believe that every family that uses donated gametes should be prepared to share with their child for the benefit of their child. But I think what's unique to the LGBTQ plus community as we go forward with donor conception is we embrace it a little bit more because we're so excited to even be able to have a family, right? So back in, a, in I think it was uh, around 2005, it was the cover of the New York Times. It was uh, surrogacy and IVF for two dads to be, right? And, uh, you know, since the passage of gay marriage and so on, there's kind of been a baby boom within the gay male community. And same-sex female couples have been moving forward with conception through donor insemination for years, but they are now also using, you know, in vitro fertilization or in vitro fertilization, either to create embryos to place in their partner's uterus, or maybe they've reproductively aged and they need help, or maybe they have blocked tubes. So within the LGBTQ plus community, in vitro fertilization is really a, a really powerful tool to help us conceive and understanding that that our view on on using a donor is a little bit different because, you know, as little as 50 years ago, we didn't have our own families. We couldn't be our true selves. And uh, so this is a really a dramatic change in dynamic. I mean, the ability for two men to become parents with the use of an egg donor is just, you know, so transformational for, for um, our community where, you know, you're your, how you identify your sexuality has no implication on your desire to be a parent. So for all you dads-to-be and moms-to-be out there who are members of, of my community, the LGBTQ plus community, you know, taking that step to be a parent is like, it's a big step and it's a lot of intention. It's a lot of resources, but it's something that's, that's really in your heart. And, and there's a whole community of people out there Lisa and myself included, who are really committed to helping you make the right decisions for your family to be. Uh, understanding, by the way, to have children is to embrace a future of which you have no control. You just don't know what you're going to get. You do have the ability, though, to make decisions, right? So anybody using donated gametes, straight or gay, has the ability to screen those gametes for genes that cause disease, screen that person for mental illness looks at their family history and get a good impression of the likelihood for success, either by using a sperm source that perhaps has been successful in the past or using an egg source that's younger, that has a very high likelihood to make a successful embryo that can make a, a, a baby someday. That's great. So what's different? Let's say, we, let's start with, you know, gay dads to be. They want to use a donor. Are they looking for different things than, let's say, a straight couple would look for when they choose a donor? A lot of gay couples are looking for a donor that's somewhere of a melange between the two of them. And uh, um, 
And that's different than if you're a straight couple and you're just looking to, quote unquote, you know, find somebody like one of you. And that might be easy. Maybe both people are of a Northern European ancestry and they want to use a Northern European donor. It might be hard. Maybe it's a bi-ethnic couple where one person is, you know, Asian and the other person is Caucasian or an African-American ancestry and a Chinese descent person. So that that can become more and more challenging. And uh, in those situations there, you know, that decision is really personalized. I have a, a couple recently who they're both Caucasian and they wanted a child that was more like a child of the world. So they wanted to use a Hispanic donor because they just see the explosion of this Latin culture within our culture. They wanted to share that with them. So you have the ability to kind of make that choice. Um, I think that there are some things that are just in our heart though. Um, so, you know, sometimes we'll encounter um, a dad to be is really passionate about their ethnicity, whether it be, you know, Polish or Jewish or, you know, Brazilian or whatever. And then, you know, they're going to seek to find a donor that has part of that in them because they also want, and this is like a hard concept, right? So if it's a two dad couple and they're going to have two kids from both of their genetics, the dad that's really passionate about their ethnicity is obviously going to pass that on to that egg and that child to be. But the dad that doesn't have that isn't going to pass it on. So the only way to accomplish that is to find a donor that has that in common. And to, so to find some of these donors that kind of make people's people feel good in their heart about finding a donor is beyond the, the medicine or the science of finding the right egg donor it's really becomes like a, a decision of the heart and it has to, it has to feel good. And I think that uh, one of the things that I stress when people look for sperm donor and egg donor across the whole gamete of assisted reproduction is, is look at the profile and recognize that your child's going to be reading that profile, maybe five times, maybe a hundred times, and make sure there's some things in there that speak to them and who they're, they're going to become. So I think, you know, it's incredibly hard to find a donor and unique within the LGBTQ plus community. We have the ability to make all these decisions, but there's also the burden of making all these decisions. And I'd like to relieve you all of this burden. You don't have that much control. Mm -hmm. You kind of uh, yeah. get what you get yeah. and you'll yeah. love what you receive. Now, what about ovarian reserve? That's different, right? For a gay male couple, they have to be a little bit more serious about that, right? There are some 25-year-old egg donors that we get 10 to 15 eggs from, and there are some 25-year-old egg donors that we get 20 to 30 eggs from. So if you're a two-dad-to-be couple where you both want to be genetic fathers, you really want to use one egg donor once and be able to split the pool and have enough embryos for both of you, right? So that being said, you're going to lean towards using the donor that has the ability to give us 20 to 30 eggs. Because what most people on this podcast probably don't appreciate, but I'll, I'll, I'll point it out to you, is, is that if you plant 20 tomato seeds, you'll be lucky to get one or two tomato plants that give you fruit, right? So if I get 30 eggs, I might get 26 mature eggs. And then I might get 20 fertilized eggs. And then I let's say I split those between two dads. So now I have 10 and 10. I might end up with five blastocysts and only two or three normals out of the group. So from that starting 
30, you might be down to five or six, right? And if you start from lower, that triangle is going to be a little bit steeper. So I inc always encourage my dad to be couples where they both want to be bio dads to look at ovarian reserve in their donor. And we can do that in reproductive medicine by looking at the ovaries themselves. Because when you look at a woman's ovaries, um, of course, that you can see how many small follicles there are. And that's a representative of their ovarian reserve. When you look at somebody's blood work, you can actually look at a hormone that's secreted by those immature eggs called anti-malarian hormone level. And we can actually gauge an estimate of how many eggs we're going to get by how high that number is going to be. So anti-malarian hormone levels, age plus basal antral follicle count are a way to assess somebody who was assigned female at birth, their ovarian reserve, right? Um, so if you're in a two dad to be couple and one of you is going to be a sperm source, you can pretty much use any egg donor you want that passes all the other screening. But if you're in a two dad to be couple and you both want to be bio dads, you're only going to have access to about 50% of the donor pool because only 50% of, let's say, 25-year-olds are going to give you 20 plus eggs to work through. And, and it's, uh, it's always challenging, right? Uh, of course, people usually um, seem to always find the person that we don't recommend that they go through, yes. right? With. That doesn't mean you don't, right? Sometimes, you know, you have to follow your heart. And there can be times where you only got 15 eggs, but we got beautiful embryos and enough for both of you to become dads. And that's where the counseling comes in. And that's where you know, whatever fertility clinic you're working through as a as a parent to be, you want to make sure you have a good relationship with your doctor, the nurses, um, the whole team, mental health professionals, and everybody, because it does take a village for you to have your family, and uh, that village has to be somebody that speaks to you. Yes, absolutely. And with regard to uh, lesbian couples, they're kind of in the same boat. If they both want to be genetic parents, they need to have that all that extra sperm also. So they need to think about that before the donor retires or before they just move along, right? Absolutely. So lesbian couples where they both want to be biologically related to children, but they're going to use both of their eggs, they're going to choose a sperm source that maybe is in between the two of them as well. They're going to face all the same, same decisions. Uh, it's interesting, and you know, we've even presented this in our research, right? That yes, there's different perspectives on the importance of the genetics of the gametes versus who's carrying the baby as well. Everybody feels differently. So, with your partner, sometimes somebody's not that interested in using their genetics. They really might want to carry the baby, right? And even in male couples, I have some male couples where one dad is like, "Listen." Uh, I'm not so interested in using my gametes and it's easier thrilled to just use your gametes because I love you. Right. And therefore it's going to be easier to find a donor. And then, I mean, in some of these bi-ethnic couples, sometimes it's in the United States, one of the few places you can do this stuff, right. It's a lot easier to find a Caucasian donor. So sometimes we'll just use the sperm from the, the, the more diverse or harder to find ethnic group and find a Caucasian donor that's like the dad who's Caucasian, right? So there's all, all kinds of different ways to like spin this Rubik's cube. And, uh, and when you solve the cube and you get all the colors lined up, um, then uh, it's just a success.
it's so wonderful to be able to have you and to be able to have modern medicine to help everyone along and build the family that they want to have. I have one other question. With regard to men who are older, older meaning, you know, in their 60s, as they pursue fertility treatment, whether there are two dads, whether there's a dad and mom, or if there's a known donor in any of those cases, how do you feel about counseling patients about when to kind of draw that line? Do you use a sperm donor? Do you not use a sperm donor? Yeah, I think that uh, reproductive aging does affect men as well. We already talked about that reproductive aging really dramatically affects women over the age of 45, really starts to really affect things over age 40. Um, but for men, the cut point is probably 50 to 60, where we talked about the testes is always making new sperm. It just gets not as efficient anymore. So the sperm quality tends to go down and the risk of having a child with some defined abnormalities such as dwarfism or schizophrenia, those things start to go up. So in our practice at Illumin Fertility, any man over 50, we recommend does advanced paternal age counseling. And, uh, um, and what will happen is you'll speak to a genetic counselor and then they'll give you relative risk. So based on your age, you know, here's your chances of having a child with this disease process if you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and so on. And I think that, uh, um, you know, it could be a really selfless act to, you know, give up your desire to use your own genetics for the benefit of your child having a lower risk for some of these diseases that that um, is related to your age. And it's not something that we can screen for at the level of the embryo. It becomes a very personal, personal decision. And, uh, you know, we have to keep this, this in perspective, right? So it might bring the risk from 0.5% to 3%, right? Which means there's still a 97% chance that they're going to have a child without one of one of these uh, uh, age-related issues for for male reproduction, but it's I think it's incumbent on on uh, the reproductive medicine group to educate you on those questions because really what you want is you you want to raise a healthy child and you have this opportunity to take these steps to uh, uh, use the healthiest sperm source or egg source as you move forward. Well, I think that's a, a fantastic way for us to end our conversation just for today, because we're going to come back in the fall or a little bit before to talk about our book. Um, but for today, happy Father's Day to everybody out there. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, Dr. Landers, is there anything that you'd like to say or ways that people can um, reach out to you? For sure. So anybody who wants to become a parent, specifically wants to become a father, those that door is open for you to step through it. We use the term journey. Sometimes it's a trek. Um, but, you know, um, one of the things that I can tell you personally is that, you know, I went from being a doctor, you know, I'm gay. So I had to struggle with that for myself. But once I became a parent, I just became more like, I guess, everybody else that's a parent, Right. And uh, a lot of the things that, that we used to worry about become different because now you're worrying about other, other things. So if you want to become a parent, um, um, we are here to help you. 
Uh, you can reach me certainly um, at alumfertility.com or gayparents2be.com. And if you just need, you know, some advice, I mean, uh, through Gay Parents To Be, I've done, you know, chats with people all over the world on how to get started. Um, and sometimes all you need to know is is how to get started and perhaps where to go. And uh, so I, I just want to applaud everybody who's considering being a parent and understand that we acknowledge that it's hard, but we also are here to help you. And I wish you the best of luck um, as you move forward and happy Father's Day to everybody. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming. And thank you everyone for joining us today. I hope whatever you're doing for Father's Day, you're having a good kind of Parents' Day. Dr. Landeros and I both are, are uh, voting to change it to Parents' Day today, actually. So um, whatever you're doing today, we hope you're having a wonderful day. And thank you so much again for joining. And please subscribe. That's how we keep going. And you'll hear about all of our new episodes. Thanks very much. And I'll see you next time.